0: Hello and welcome to Bell's Library, where we explore the intersection of media and pop culture with current events and social change. I'm your host, Bell, known on Twitter as bellresists, or occasionally belldameron because Disney and Star Wars go together like peanut butter and jelly, in my opinion. I'd like to welcome you today to my personal library. Libraries are more than just a quiet, dusty repository of books with a stern librarian shushing you if you get too loud. Throughout history, libraries have been a center of knowledge with the capability to spark new and revolutionary ideas. In this library, there is plenty of talking about our favorite books and media and about how they connect with important issues happening in our world today. We'll be discussing current media and pop culture, such as the latest Marvel movies and best-selling novels, as well as historical classics and media that had a big impact on our childhood. And then we'll talk about the ways in which they are still relevant today. I'll be inviting a series of regular guest hosts to discuss various topics with me in future episodes. I'd like to open it up with a segment I'm calling the Reference Desk. At the Reference Desk, we'll establish some important background knowledge about all sorts of topics. To begin with, we're going to delve into dictionaries. According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a dictionary is defined as a reference source in print or electronic form, containing words usually alphabetically arranged along with information about their forms, pronunciations, functions, etymologies, meanings, and syntactic and idiomatic uses. This may sound really boring, but dictionaries can be important instruments of social change. How we use and define language is vital to the ways in which we communicate new ideas. And sometimes our language choices can be quite revolutionary. One of the best current examples of this is the Merriam-Webster dictionary itself. So let's dive into a bit of the history behind this dictionary. Noah Webster published the first edition of an American Dictionary of the English Language in 1828 after two decades of intensive work studying the etymology of words and the particulars of American language usage. One thing to know about Noah Webster is that he was a spelling reformer. He was instrumental in simplifying the language of the United States, and he formalized American spellings as a way of promoting a nationalist identity that was not reliant on British rules of spelling the language. You might know about this if you have ever seen the British spellings of words such as color, where they have a U in there after the second O. A lot of British spellings use this kind of format. They also like to reverse letters, or rather I should say that Americans reverse the letters like center, where Americans spell it with an ER at the end. British spelling has it with the R first, RE. We have also changed a few words so that words such as realize and organize end in the suffix I-Z-E instead of I-S-E. So those are some examples of the ways that we have changed our language over time. One of the reasons why we do it this way is because it's simpler, at least according to Noah Webster and people like him, they believed it was a simpler way to spell and also It was a a very American way of spelling things. And in the early 19th century, defining American culture separate and apart from British culture was a very important concept. Another thing to discuss about dictionaries is that there are two kinds of dictionaries, descriptivist and prescriptivist. A descriptivist dictionary describes the way that language is used in the real world. A prescriptive dictionary describes the way that the dictionary creators think language should be used. So whenever you hear people saying things like, don't split an infinitive, or don't end a sentence with a preposition, that is prescriptive. But most of us in the real world do end sentences with prepositions quite often, and we don't really pay much attention to things like splitting infinitives. So all those grammar rules are prescriptive. They tell us how we should speak. Descriptive language describes the ways that we actually speak. So when people say that ain't ain't a word, it is if you're a descriptivist. Plenty of people throughout the world and the United States in particular use words like ain't, and just telling us that it's wrong doesn't mean people aren't going to use it. So was Noah Webster a descriptivist or a prescriptivist? You can be both. He seems to me to be more descriptive because he emphasized the way that Americans already tended to use language, but by formalizing such rules, he was prescribing a specifically American way of speaking and writing English. Noah Webster died in 1843. Shortly after, George and Charles Merriam secured publishing rights to Webster's Dictionary. The company continued to publish Webster's Dictionary under that name until 1983, when the dictionary's name was officially changed to Merriam-Webster. Merriam-Webster dictionary has become an ubiquitous presence on Twitter in recent years. A New Yorker article from September 13, 2017, entitled A Lexicographer's Memoir of Merriam-Webster in the Internet Age, profiles Merriam-Webster lexicographer Corey Stamper. A lexicographer is an author or editor of a dictionary. According to the article... Quote, Stamper most vividly captures the dictionary's broader interaction with society in her discussion of the linguistic and political overlap surrounding the term marriage. In 2009, Stamper writes, her inbox suddenly blew up with objections to Mary Webster's definition of marriage. A conservative group had recently discovered that the dictionary included, in its definition of that word, a substance of marriage accounting for same-sex marriage. Stamper notes in the book that the definition has nothing to do with the Mary M. Webster political agenda and everything to do with the way in which the word was already being used in the world. By 2003, there were far too many citations for marriage with the modifiers gay or same-sex to ignore, and Stamper and her colleagues revised the entry accordingly." This is a great example of a descriptivist approach that was seen as a prescriptivist approach. By describing how people were already using the word marriage, Uh, Merriam-Webster appeared to some conservative groups to be advocating same-sex marriage. Whether it's intentionally or not, dictionaries can be seen as controversial when they reflect and define such changing concepts in modern society. They can also call attention to words with political and social relevance on the platform of social media. Merriam-Webster has become an ubiquitous presence on Twitter, posting a regular word of the day and announcing spikes in lookups of certain words in the online version of the dictionary words that reflect important events and sometimes current controversies. Merriam-Webster claims that their Twitter feed is not intended to be political, but it has made some very pointed posts in recent years. Some examples. On January 22, 2017, Kellyanne Conway said to Chuck Dodd on Meet the Press, You're saying it's a falsehood, and Sean Spicer, our press secretary, is giving alternative facts to that. Merriam-Webster published a post on their website saying that lookups for the words fact spiked dramatically after this exchange aired, and they tweeted their definition of fact, a piece of information presented as having objective reality, just hours later. If this isn't snarky enough for you, two days later they followed up with another tweet saying, whispers into the void, in contemporary use, fact is understood to refer to something with actual existence. Merriam-Webster, in particular, has a history of subtly trolling the Trump campaign and administration through pointed blog posts, tweets, and word of the day selections. After Trump mistakenly used the word unprecedented in December 2017, Merriam-Webster tweeted, Good morning! The word of the day is not unprecedented. We don't enter that word. That's a new one. Followed by a link to the definition of, huh, as the actual word of the day. Other word choices to emphasize include... Big Lee versus Big League, complicit and misogyny. They also call out Trump's frequent misspellings, such as honor, which he misspelled as H O N E R, lightweight, which he misspelled as L E I G H T weight, and White House Counsel versus Council, C O N S E L versus C O N C I L. On May thirtieth, twenty seventeen, after Trump posted a truncated tweet with the misspelled word Covfefe which was probably intended to be the word coverage, Merriam-Webster tweeted, Wakes up. Checks Twitter. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, dot, dot, dot. Lookups for... Dot, dot, dot. Regrets checking Twitter. Goes back to bed. Kofifi went on to become one of the most widespread memes of the Trump administration so far. Apparently, Merriam-Webster claims they are not trying to troll Trump and other media figures, but that seems hard to believe when their choice of words to examine is so very on the nose. Last Tuesday, after Roseanne Barr tweeted racist comments about Valerie Jarrett, the new revival of The Roseanne Show was very quickly cancelled by ABC. Shortly after, Merriam-Webster tweeted a link to a short article on the difference in spelling between cancelled with one or two L's. Merriam-Webster and other descriptive dictionaries add new words when they become relevant or enter common usage. In March of this year, they added dumpster fire and mansplain, for example. These words have been very relevant and widely used. Word usage can also change over time, and as meanings change, so can our understanding. Language can actually affect the way people think, and having the word for a concept can be crucial to understanding that concept. Words can be co-opted or reclaimed to take away or redirect their power. Examples of reclamation include women and minorities taking back slurs such as gay, queer, the N-word, and slut. Words can be redefined in harmful ways too, which I will look at in more depth in my next episode. We'll talk about PTSD and the related concepts of triggers, trigger warnings, safe spaces, and coping mechanisms. And we'll look at some of the ways that these concepts are portrayed in media, including news and editorials, online meme culture, web comics, and movies and TV shows such as Marvel's Jessica Jones. We'll also continue to look at the history of dictionaries and language, especially from an American perspective. So we can delve into how language changes over time, how it can be used to oppress, and how we can use it as a tool to fight back against that oppression. When we come back, I'll introduce the segment called Citation Needed, and we'll fact check some of the big stories from this week. Welcome back. In this next segment, Citation Needed, we'll be discussing some important stories in the news lately and providing some of the context and background knowledge needed to understand those stories, as well as doing a little fact-checking. This week, we've seen a lot in the news about immigration in the U.S. and headlines about missing children and families being forcibly separated at the border abound. These can prompt very strong emotional reactions, so it's extra important to carefully check the facts before we get carried away with our feelings about these stories. I am recording this on Saturday, June 2nd, 2018. These stories are all stories and headlines that have surfaced over the last week. For all of these stories, there's some necessary clarification that needs to be made. A number of different government departments are discussed and it's important to understand which departments these are and how they are organized. First, the Department of Health and Human Services, often abbreviated as HHS we will also talk about the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS. Underneath these two departments are some others, including the Office of Refugee Resettlement, ORR, which is categorized under the Department of Health and Human Services. As part of the Department of Homeland Security, we have the Customs and Border Protection, CBP, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, which you will likely have heard a lot about in recent days in the news. First, I'd like to talk about a viral meme that showed up on my Facebook feed. A family member posted a photo of rosaries reportedly confiscated from undocumented immigrants by U.S. Border Patrol agents. For many, this calls to mind images of personal possessions confiscated from Jews in German concentration camps during World War II. I expressed some doubt about the photo, because the rosaries were neatly and artfully displayed in sharp contrast to photos of similarly confiscated items that one might expect to find collected in a disorganized pile. At first, I suspected it was a stock photo someone had falsely claimed was of confiscated items. However, on further research, I discovered that the rosaries are from a photo series by Tom Kiefer, who was a janitor at an Arizona CBP facility for many years. Part of his job was to dispose of confiscated items that were taken from undocumented immigrants apprehended at the border. The facility's policy was to confiscate all items considered potentially lethal or non-essential. Kiefer discovered that these items included everything from toilet paper to toothbrushes, pocket bibles, rosaries, water bottles, keys, shoelaces, razors, mixed CDs, condoms, birth control pills, sunglasses, hairbrushes, combs, wallets, baby food, Gloves, sewing kits, cosmetics, candy, stuffed animals, children's toys, and more. Kiefer began sneaking the trash out and collecting it, eventually using it to begin a photography project in which he artfully displays and photographs the objects. After 10 years working for CBP, he quit his job to focus full-time on his artwork. He calls this photography project El Sueño Americano. According to an article on Kiefer in The New Yorker, Quote, Kiefer sees his project as a counterweight to CBP's dehumanizing practices, which yank everyday objects from the context that imbued them with meaning. He hopes not just to draw people's attention to those practices, but also to evoke the value the objects must have once had to their owners. End quote. I think it's wise to be skeptical of the emotional memes we see shared online, but digging deeper can actually be a rewarding experience that deepens our understanding of what's going on and provides context to the strong emotions we feel. Next headline I'd like to talk about, we've been seeing a lot about yellow wristbands being given to immigrants at the border. A lot of people see these wristbands as analogous to the yellow star of David that Jews were forced to wear in Nazi Germany. In a society already sensitive to encroaching fascism and an increase in neo-Nazi demonstrations, such a symbol takes on sinister implications, so it's worth taking a closer look at. What I found was information about Operation Streamline, which was launched in 2005 by Michael Chertoff, then Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, during the Bush administration. This was continued during the Obama and Trump administrations. Operation Streamline was intended to reduce the rate of alien re-entry recidivism. It replaced the so-called catch-and-release policy, where immigrants at the border were apprehended, taken back across the border and then released, and would frequently cross the border again. It replaced this with a policy of rounding up the immigrants, prosecuting them, forcing them to serve jail sentences, and then be formally deported. Often, immigrants in this program are processed en masse rather than individually. You can find photos online of groups of immigrants in orange jumpsuits being processed, I'm going to guess maybe like 30 or 40 or even 50 at once. For at least five years, wristbands have been used to identify individuals rounded up for prosecution. Operation Streamline is carried out by ICE and CBP, which are, of course, operating under the Department of Homeland Security, and U.S. attorneys and district courts, which operate under the Department of Justice. So whether or not you see this as representative of the same kind of thing as the Star of David is a matter for argument. It makes sense that they would need a way to keep track of immigrants when they are rounding them up in such great numbers. Whether they should be rounding them up in such great numbers, of course, is an entirely different question. But that gives us some basic context to what could be a very emotionally charged topic. Another thing that I'm seeing a lot of online is a, the argument that, oh, but this was all happening under Obama. Let's talk about that a little bit. It's true that the reports of the Office of Refugee Resettlement being unable to contact unaccompanied minors are from the Obama administration, but this is not the same thing as the stories of small children being taken from their parents. Let's talk about unaccompanied minors. The actual term used is UACs, unaccompanied alien children. I personally have a problem with the term alien because I feel it is... It is an imprecise term that is emotionally charged, but for a lot of these official reports, that is the term they use. So that's one of the terms we'll be using, although you will see unaccompanied minors coming up a lot in the news reports. These unaccompanied minors in the past were usually older children and teenagers who crossed the border without their parents or other guardians. Separating children from their parents deliberately is a new policy. It is distinctly different from the unaccompanied minors. The important thing about unaccompanied minors to know is that a lot of families will send parents across to try to get established. And once the parents are established, their older children will be sent across, often with a guide or a family member. Somebody will bring them across and try to get them to their parents. If they are apprehended at the border without their parents, they are classified as unaccompanied alien children and put under the purview of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Such children are usually given over into the custody of a sponsor, which can be a relative and can be somebody that the child knows or is known to the family, or in some cases could be someone they don't know, but who is qualified via background checks to be the child's sponsor. They will bring them to things like immigration check-ins and will be responsible for the child's well-being. We have been hearing about a lot of these children being lost. What that means is that the Office of Refugee Resettlement has tried to contact these sponsors and was unable to. This does not necessarily mean that they are, quote unquote, lost, but it does mean that the Office of Refugee Resettlement is unsure precisely where they are at the moment. Now, this is different from other reports we've heard of children being forcibly separated from their families. That is a new policy, and it is not something that the administration is trying to shamefully sweep under the rug. They're proud of it. In May 2018, Jeff Sessions said in a speech, I have put in place a zero tolerance policy for illegal entry on our southwest border. If you cross this border unlawfully, then we will prosecute you. It's that simple. If you smuggle illegal aliens across our border, then we will prosecute you. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you, and that child will be separated from you as required by law. If you make false statements to an immigration officer or file a fraudulent asylum claim, that's a felony. If you help others to do so, that's a felony, too. You're going to jail. So if you're going to come to this country, come here legally. Don't come here illegally. So when Sessions said, if you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you, and that child will be separated from you as required by law, he is advocating a very different approach to migrant families. This includes refugees who may be fleeing violence and persecution in their home countries. But when they arrive at our borders with their families, they are called criminals and their children are taken from them. They were not smuggling the children. They were traveling with their families. This is an important distinction. Many are prosecuted and sentenced to time in prison while their children are placed in detention centers or with sponsors. This is not an uncommon thing to happen to children of parents who are incarcerated. However, we're learning that many of these parents are unable to locate their children once they have been released from prison and usually deported, while their children remain somewhere in the U.S. These children have been reclassified as un- unaccompanied minors, UACs, unaccompanied alien children. But there is a big difference between an unaccompanied teenager who crossed the border without family and small children as young as 53 weeks old who have been forcibly taken from their families. It's very important to recognize that this was not a policy under the Obama administration. It is something that has been purposefully implemented by the Trump administration and championed by Jeff Sessions. It's also worth noting that there is a huge difference on the effect on a child of being separated from their families as an older child or young teenager or as a baby or toddler. I work with young children as my job and I am very familiar with the necessary role that a safe relationship with a trusted adult Plays in a young child's life. When small children are separated from their families at young ages, it can be an extremely traumatic experience that will affect their development and their emotional well-being, possibly for the rest of their lives. This is very different from the policy of sending unaccompanied minors to go live with sponsors. This is something that should not be conflated. There are very different things. And it's very important for us to understand the difference and how this policy has changed with the current administration. Now let's talk about another headline that has been so very emotional for a lot of people, it makes a lot of them say they wanna cry when they read it. You might've heard about a prison bus for babies. This image that has been traveling around online sparks particularly vehement outrage. It is of a transport filled with child safety seats, often shared with a caption calling it a prison bus for babies. Is it really, though? Let's break down the facts. The image was originally sourced from a blog post on the website of GeoGroup, the private prison company that runs the Carnes County Residential Center in Carnes City, Texas. The article was published on April 29, 2016, and is titled New Specialized Transport Buses. Let's start with the most trivial part of the claim. Is this bus for babies? Technically, no. The child seats you see installed on the bus are child safety seats for young children under five years old, but they are not rear-facing infant seats. In Texas, this type of child safety seat is required by law for children over one year old and under five, as well as any child over five years old who is less than 36 inches tall. So typically, these seats are for toddlers or preschool-age children, not infants. Baby is an imprecise term, and although I completely understand, my preschool students range in age from two and a half to five, and they are all my babies. It adds a level of subjective emotion to the topic that could cloud our understanding of what's going on. In any case, the original post makes it clear that these buses are intended for children ages 4 to 17. Clearly, the safety seats can be removed or moved around. This is important for those who are outraged at the lack of open seats for adults. Additionally, GeoGroup claims that... Quote, for every off-site trip of this nature, an operational plan is developed and submitted to ICE for review and approval. Each trip and vehicle requires a minimum of one nurse, two teachers, and one case manager. For control and security, GTI staff seat all adult chaperones evenly dispersed throughout the cabin to maintain order and safety of the children during transit. End quote. Is this comforting? Your mileage may vary. But the children aren't simply being shoved into the back of a bus alone, at least according to GeoGroup. So, are they prison buses? Technically, yes. Carnes County Residential Center is, in fact, a detention center. While it is intended for women and children, they are confined to the facility and are not allowed to leave. It is also a long-term detention center rather than a temporary holding location used for processing. An MSNBC article from August 3, 2015, tells of families held at the center for several months and as long as a year. According to an AP article from May 31, 2017, federal rules do not allow minors to be held at such facilities for longer than 20 days. Yet at Carns and other similar federal centers, families are often held long past the allotted time. Lobbyists for Geo Group attempted to push bills which would have re- waived minimum child care licensing standards for such facilities in order to have them reclassified as child care centers, allowing them to get around the time period limitation. So far, however, these bills appear to have failed. So, despite the fact that many of the detainees held there appear not to have been charged with an actual crime, at least according to the research I was able to do, and many of them are refugees fleeing dangerous situations who do in fact qualify for asylum according to the law, Carnes County Residential Center continues to operate, having expanded in 2015 to an increased capacity of 1,158 beds. So, what are these prison buses for children used for? The knee-jerk reaction online appears to be that they must be for transporting children after separating them from their parents, which is a conflation of several related news stories that have surfaced around the same time. It's true that the Trump administration's new policy is to separate children from their parents, but Carnes is specifically intended to house mothers with their children. It doesn't seem that any fathers are housed there with their families, however, from what research I was able to do, and I thought that was somewhat notable. GeoGroup's blog states, The center's recent expansion created new demands to an already unique transportation mission by requiring larger capacity vehicles to provide off-site field trips. These field trips are part of the contract with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. Field trips are provided to all children ages 4 through 17, enrolled in educational programs provided by the John H. Wood Charter School, located at KCRC. Field trips consist of going to a variety of places, such as the San Antonio Zoo, seeing a movie at the local theater, going to the park, etc. That sounds lovely. I do wonder, however, how the reality measures up to what they claim. I would very much like to know what kind of an education is provided to children on site and how it compares to best practices and standards. Hopefully, I'll be able to do a more in-depth look at this later if I can find the sources I need. I will continue to research this. One last nitpick about the buses. GeoGroup says... Each seat has a convertible child safety seat and is equipped with a DVD system with four drop-down screens to provide entertainment to the children with onboard movies during transport missions. First of all, this preschool teacher bristles at the idea of needlessly pacifying small children with excessive amounts of screen time that is not healthy for their developing brains, clearly as a substitute for proper behavior management and care for children who are almost certainly all suffering from varying levels of trauma. Secondly, transport missions is not a term I would typically use when talking about field trips for small children. Lastly, GeoGroup's post ends with the sentence, the entire GTI team at the Carnes County Residential Center is dedicated to provide safe, secure, and efficient transportation of our, quote, precious cargo, unquote, the children and mothers assigned to our facility. The sinister, somewhat smarmy irony in this, quote, makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little. So. If you're imagining a bus full of unaccompanied toddlers being whisked away from their parents, screaming and crying, and possibly never to see them again, that's not what this is. The reality, however, is far from reassuring, and I personally do not trust a private prison corporation as far as I could throw them in any circumstances, much less when it comes to questionably legal detention center for immigrant children and their mothers. However emotional these stories make us feel, though, it is really important for us to understand the facts and to understand what is really going on. What really is happening could be just as worrying as what we feared. But in this age of alternative facts and muddied waters of what is and isn't true, it's very important, more than ever, for us to understand the actual realities of what's happening and the truth behind the headlines. Thanks for tuning in to Bell's Library. I'll be updating on a bi-weekly schedule for now, so be sure to subscribe and watch for another episode in two weeks. Next time, I hope to have a special guest host on to talk about PTSD and its portrayal in popular media. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at bellslibrarypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I would like to do a Q&A segment, so let me know if you would like me to answer your questions on air. Thank you, and remember, in the words of T.S. Eliot... The very existence of libraries affords the best evidence that we may yet have hope for the future of man.